Welcome to the National CMV Foundation podcast. I'm Kristen Spitek, President and Chair of the National CMV Foundation. Congenital cytomegalovirus, or CMV infection, is arguably the most common preventable cause of neonatal disability in the United States, affecting more than 30,000 children per year. The National CMV Foundation is dedicated to educating women of childbearing age about congenital CMV, and our podcast series highlights advocacy, education, industry, and scientific advances in the space, bringing congenital cytomegalovirus to the forefront of the conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Meridian Bioscience, working to create healthcare solutions that help save lives with each discovery, each diagnosis, every patient, every day. So my guests today are two phenomenal humans, Kathleen Muldoon and Seth Dobson. They are both PhDs, both CMV activists, and they're also married. I'd like to kick things off by allowing each of them to introduce themselves. So can you guys talk a little bit about your professional backgrounds a bit and perhaps how you two met? Kathleen, let's start with you. Uh, Sure. So uh, my name is Kathleen, and I came to the States in 2000, actually, to start my PhD program, my graduate program in anthropology. And when I got to campus, that's where I met this dashing young man named Seth Dobson, uh, who was already in the anthropology program at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, And... That's basically how we met, and we uh, were in, in graduate school together for um, for five years before we got married and um, started our life together before um, graduating and getting jobs in uh, in New England. Awesome. And Seth, what about you? Um, so yeah, Kathleen mentioned um, we met in uh, anthropology grad school. So I have a PhD in, in biological anthropology, and. Um, uh, for a few years, I was a professor of anthropology um, in New England, and um, uh, a few years ago, I left academia to move into industry doing a basically data science job, and that's, that's what I'm doing now. Um, I work for a, a marketing uh, technology uh, consulting firm, and um, yeah, I do a lot of, a lot of data. Can you share your personal connection to congenital CMV and and sort of why you're so motivated to drive change in this space and how your professional backgrounds kind of lend itself to this industry? Yeah, so we were um, both teaching at the same school um, in New Hampshire uh, and when we first graduated graduate school. And I, because we are both um, have similar fields of study, I, like a lot of biological anthropologists, actually um, started teaching anatomy at medical school um, because we know about how the body works and we do a lot of training in in anatomy and and anatomy and how that relates to um, fossils, actually, in paleontological work, which is a large part of my professional background. Um, But I was doing a lot of medical education, and for, um, I want to say, eight years um, after I um, graduated, I was teaching anatomy to medical students, which is what I continue to do today, Uh, and my specialty in teaching medical students is actually embryology, which is um, the study of how babies develop um, in utero um, before they're born, and the way that development happens typically in the ways that it can be interrupted um, by different different interruptions to to typical pathways. so I've been teaching that for, um, I have been teaching that for about eight years 
when um, we uh, and had, had been teaching about that for eight years before actually I had even heard about CMV. Um, and the way that we learned about CMV is when our family was personally affected by it when our middle son was born with a congenital infection. Yeah, that must have been yeah, an incredibly, incredibly difficult time. Um, what information was passed along to you guys when your son was born, and when was he first diagnosed? Was it at birth, in the hospital, or later? Well, I guess I'll go a little bit more into the story. I'll say that um, it was actually when I was pregnant with Gideon, um, who was our second child and the child who was born with congenital infection. Um, it was actually perfect timing, I thought at the time, in relation to my teaching of embryology, because I was kind of developing the baby along the same um, time of the of the different organ systems that I was talking about to the medical school class. So I would actually stand in front of the class and, you know, rub my growing baby and talk about all the wonderful things that were happening inside me and kind of as a sidebar, say like, oh, yeah, and here are some things that can sometimes go wrong, you know, that you want to watch out for and you need to learn these things for your board. And so, um, it, you know, during that time, I was, I was co-teaching with uh, obstetricians and gynecologists. I was co-teaching with pediatricians. Um, and never once in any of my discussions with um, those healthcare professionals or in the textbook even um, that these students were referencing uh, for the medical education was CMV listed. I had never heard about it. Um, and so we um, didn't choose to have our children at the same hospital where I was teaching. I think for obvious reasons, there are some times where you just want to be a mom and not a teacher, like when you're giving birth. Um, and so we were, um, we, we had Gideon at a small birthing center that was uh, not at the teaching hospital. And when he was born, um, you know, nobody suspected anything, even though there had probably been warning signs along the way. Um, but he was born and we were actually um, asked, asking to be discharged early so that uh, we could go home to spend time with our daughter, who at the time was about three. Uh, but uh, when the OBGYN came in to, um, to discharge me, she noticed that um, our daughter was, or sorry, our son was um, jaundiced and that um, had presented with uh, a rash. And so she um, actually asked that he be put under the lights, and it wasn't until his pediatrician came to check on him that, um, I mean, I remember very distinctly he walked into the room and washed his hands in the corner and didn't actually even make eye contact until he kind of walked over to us, took a look at Gideon and said, I don't know what to tell you, I think it's CMV. And in that moment, you know, it was like there was a crack in the planet, and we didn't exactly know what was happening, um, all that we kind of knew was that there was suddenly a team um, coming from the high-risk hospital, from the teaching hospital, that loaded him up into a glass case and took him away from us. And we had to walk out into the cold, dark New England night uh, and follow behind the ambulance um, for our son, where he stayed in the NICU for six weeks. So it was quite traumatic, um, the way that we had learned about it, even though I was so heavily involved um, in medical education up until that point. That story is not totally 
unique, unfortunately, in that so many of our parents had never heard of it. What's shocking to me is that you both have a background in this sort of medical state in terms of understanding anthropology, understand embryology, and yet nothing had ever been mentioned to you in textbooks as well as through your education. So it is really, it's unfortunate that this is still happening. It's unfortunate that it's happening to people of all socioeconomic classes. Um, and, you know, I think that's why you two are both so intriguing to me, especially is because your backgrounds are incredibly different um, than some of our parents. And yet you both have opportunity to sort of share your story and you're incredibly motivated due to Gideon and all of the challenges he faces and how amazing and, and what a bright light he is to both of you as well as our CMV community. Um, and we're so just we're just so grateful for the opportunity to collaborate with you guys and to have you as part of this community because I know that together we will continue to push for progress. Um, and so, you know, based on that sort of background and, you know, Gideon's birth and, and just learning about congenital CMV, and I like what you said when you said there was a crack in the universe. I mean, I think that's exactly how to describe it when we all hear that initial diagnosis. It's it's shocking and it's like time stops and, um, you know, it's devastating and it's devastating for so many families. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the work that you've done now that Gideon is five, um, you know, sort of merging your professional life as well as your personal experiences with congenital CMV? You know, what has propelled you into publishing some data and seeking out data that's really critical to the movement and what we're trying to do at National CMV to push for awareness in general? Can you talk a little bit about your 2017 paper, Kathleen? Sure. I think the thing that we all share in common, and I think that a lot of parents who have children born with congenital CMV is, why have I never heard of this before? And why wasn't I warned about the behaviors that we know can reduce the risk of contracting CMV while you're pregnant? And that is something that I just couldn't get past, especially as someone who, as you said, has such um, daily professional interactions with healthcare providers and was openly, you know, using my pregnancy to, to teach medical students. I just, I couldn't get past that for a long time. And I started seeing that theme as I became more and more involved in the CMV parent forums online and meeting other parents and families, the children who are, children who are born with CMV. And one of the stories that really stuck out to me and I find heartbreaking even to this day because it's a story that unfortunately we hear too often, is that um, when parents come onto these forums and they ask advice because um, a therapist or some other provider has decided that they can no longer work with their child who needs those therapies because they were born with congenital CMV. And that is something we see all the time, that these children are being denied much needed services um, because from the outset, it seems like those healthcare providers just don't understand what CMV is or how it can be um, spread. And so there had been, as um, Seth and I kind of got more and more into CMV and learned more and more about it, um, we, we were especially intrigued about these studies that were measuring awareness and like actually what do people actually know about congenital CMV. And there have been several studies who um, looked at this metric, you know, in um, in women in the U.S., in 
in different subspecialties, um, healthcare providers, midwives, um, both nationally and internationally, child care providers, um, looking a lot at um, both populations that have the opportunity to um, educate families, but also those populations that are at risk for contracting it if they work with children. And so I think that was really um, the primary impetus for um, for the study that we published in 2017, which was really um, the primary objective initially when we took it, um, undertook it was to simply quantify what um, therapists, specifically physical and occupational therapists, knew about CMV. You know, that is really a tremendous population of people to survey. I think that one that is having firsthand knowledge of the kiddos and dealing with some of the manifestations of congenital CMV. But to your point, you know, the information that's being conveyed or taught in medical school is not necessarily deep enough or not appropriate enough in terms of the realities of congenital CMV and the prevention of such, um, you know, mechanisms or methods of working with kids with congenital CMV and how that could affect somebody before or during pregnancy. And I think the misconceptions or the untruths are real. Um, and I'm so glad that you thought that this was a an interesting paper and one to publish that really differentiates between that awareness and that deep understanding. Um, can you talk a little bit about the structure, like how many people did you survey and um, how did you analyze that data? Sure. So we based the structure on um, some of the previous surveys that had been um, already published. And they essentially measured um, they asked uh, participants, you know, are you aware of the following conditions? And uh, CMV was one of the conditions, but other conditions that we we had a good sense that people are probably more aware of, things like Down syndrome, things like um, pediatric HIV-AIDS, and then other conditions for which we know there have been, you know, public awareness campaigns like stroke or breast cancer, simply to have a baseline against which to measure um, the respondents uh, uh, with regard to cytomegalovirus um, or CMV. Um, so we, we put it out there um, for therapists using their, um, their national um, associations to, to gain access to them. And we got a, a pretty good response rate. We got about 300 people responding. Um, but I think um, what we found when we started to analyze the data is that um, there seem to be two different um, metrics that were emerging. And there was the one metric which had been similar to the way that it had been previously measured in other studies, which is um, what we termed self-reported awareness, or what, if you ask somebody, do you know about something, if they say yes or no, if they can say that, you know, they're familiar with something. And so that is someone telling you, um, you know, in a direct response to a question, yes, I've heard of that. Or can they pick it out from a list of things uh, on the survey as we were presenting it to them um, in our study? Um, but there was a second that was uh, probably more interesting to us metric that we decided to um, call health risk knowledge. And that was, sure, they're saying they can, you know, pick CMV out of a list, that they're familiar with it, that they're aware of it. But can they tell us anything meaningful about it? And for us, that meant particularly, can they identify uh, the behavioral ways that CMV is contracted or spread? Um, since this 
is the metric by which, you know, we think we could have some public health intervention and actually um, reduce um, the rates of transmission for CMV. Yeah, so like health risk knowledge, the, the, the instrument, the, the portion of the survey that, that we used is basically asking the um, survey responders to identify, you know, correctly the uh, modes of transmission and uh, uh, contraction of, of CMV. And so, you know, if somebody got, you know, uh, a high number of correct answers on there, then we would say they have a, they have a relatively high health risk knowledge of CMV. Um, if they got uh, relatively few correct answers, we would say they had a relatively low health risk knowledge. And so that became an additional metric beyond just uh, awareness or, or self-reported familiarity to where we could actually start looking at the contrast or the, or the gap between uh, what people say they are aware of and familiar uh, and are familiar with versus what they actually know in terms of how CMV, um, you know, operates and specifically with regard to how one would avoid, you know, uh, getting uh, CMV and, and spreading it. And that's, you know, an important distinction because what someone thinks that they know, right, is not the same thing as what they actually know. And um, that means that there, you know, this gap, you know, that means that there is an important space um, through which we can have some real educational initiatives that can have some real meaning in terms of public health out in the community. Yeah, I think that's a really critical point, right, is, you know, what are the gaps and then how can we address them? Do you know of any other disease area where there's health risk knowledge gap may have existed in the past but has been overcome or today is being handled differently where there is broad educational understanding of that particular disease, do you have anything in mind that you could share with us? I mean, I, I I don't think anyone's ever really looked at it this way before, so I can't, you know, I can't say for sure um, and give you an example because, you know, really most of the focus has been on awareness, like have you heard of it, and less work has been centered on the extra step of trying to measure what people actually know about the condition, so whether it's CMV or, you know, um, uh, HIV AIDS or Down syndrome or whatever the, the condition is, you know, when you talk about the survey results for those conditions, they all focus on um, this, let's be honest, relatively um, shallow measure of knowledge, which is awareness, right? Um, and so um, I can't really point to any, you know, uh, examples where you know that gap has been closed because it hasn't really been measured uh, in in for other conditions that that we're aware of. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense, and you know I think this is the true definition of public health, right? Is is sort of the appropriateness of public health messaging and what the intent of that messaging is is trying to do or trying to accomplish. So you know, just thinking out loud about you know, smoking or obesity or diabetes or other things that have taken on some public health messaging or campaigns that have really broadened the awareness and then taken it one step forward to sort of talk about how you can change your behavior or stop doing something altogether or practice prevention. 
to drive that change or to lower that incidence. And I think that's so effective when you have the right tools to put something out there that's a little bit more in mass. Um, and the effectiveness of the media, right? I mean, if you're thinking about Zika, none of us knew about this a few years back, but because of the national press attention that Zika has gotten, you know, not only are healthcare professionals well adverse to understanding Zika and the prevention that could happen, but they're also talking about it in their practices. Women are talking about it. They're taking measures to make sure they're not traveling to places that may have a high Zika rating. They are practicing in terms of wearing DEET and long clothing and just being very conscious of it. And, and the conversation is clearly happening in the doctor's office. So um, looking at this data and analyzing it, and to your point, how it maybe hasn't been done for so many other diseases, I think is interesting. Um, but I think now we probably have a much better understanding about what is general awareness about congenital CMV and what is that health risk knowledge, you know, and who who's going to benefit from knowing that. It, it really points to, like you said, like what do we want to target, right? What, are the, what, is the, what is the needle that we need to move in order to get those rates of transmission down? And it is, you know, increasing the behaviors amongst women that will reduce the risk of contracting it while they're pregnant. So really, that is that is what we want to capture and that was what we want to measure and that should probably be the, the target for um, a lot of public health messaging, right? Because it's a simple and effective way that we know will, um, will reduce the risk of, of transmission um, from the mom to the baby um, of, of CMV while, while they're pregnant. And so I think that is is one thing that we can take away from some of these other um, public health campaigns. So, you know, like people may know about um, car accidents and you could die in a car accident, you know, but the focus is on click it or ticket, right? The, the focus is on wearing that seatbelt. And the same thing with CMV, you know, it's not enough just to know that your baby can catch a, a flu-like virus while they're, while, um, from you while they're developing, you know, in utero, uh, but also what can you do to prevent um, catching um, that virus. And it turns out it's the same universal precautions to prevent getting the common cold, the flu, all the other things that just uh, lead to good health in general. And I know you guys talked a little bit about this paper in Burlington, Vermont at our 2018 Public Health and Policy Conference. Were there interesting questions coming from the crowd? Did you extrapolate on the paper at all in terms of any data that you thought was interesting in comparing perhaps the national awareness rate based on a different uh, study or you know things that you had found both personally and, and as part of this paper? Is there anything else you could share with us about it? Yeah, that so that um, that presentation, one of the, um, the things that we talked about there was um, uh, kind of a statistical analysis that we did to uh, try and estimate what health risk knowledge numbers look like in different populations that had been surveyed for awareness of CMV. So as I mentioned, you know, the 2017 study is the only study where health risk knowledge of CMV has ever been measured. Directly, and so you know, and that was a, that was a survey of uh, basically female OTs and PTs, and we wanted to get a better idea from you know that uh, that study uh, about estimating at a national level what the health risk knowledge of CMV would would look like. Like, what what kind of numbers are we talking about? So basically. We, uh, you know, not to get too technical, but we we took the difference between the um, the percentage of those uh, OTs and PTs in the 2017 study that 
were familiar with CMV and the percentage that had high health risk knowledge of CMV. And that, that difference was, uh, uh, it was 52% for the uh, percent that were uh, familiar, and it was 21% uh, for uh, the, uh, the number of folks that actually uh, had health risk knowledge of CMV. So quite a big difference. Um, and we took that difference and uh, ran some computer simulations based on published studies of self-reported familiarity or awareness of CMV from uh, a national, uh, at the national level, so the, the, uh, the Trey uh, et al. 2016. Um, we also had other populations that we looked at, um, U.S. Uh, with college degrees. There was a, a study in France that looked at two different hospitals, um, U.S. child care, work, care, child care workers, uh, even midwives for the Netherlands. So basically, all the previous studies of um, awareness of CNV that we could get our hands on, and we use our computer simulations to estimate um, essentially best case scenario, actually best and worst case scenarios for uh, health risk knowledge. But we reported the best case scenario because we're trying to be trying to be positive here. But uh, the, from from our simulations, what we found was that, um, so for example, at the national level in the U.S., the best case scenario for the percentage of the general U.S. population that has uh, high health risk knowledge of CMV is 5%. So that's quite a big difference from the level of uh, the measure of overall awareness of CMV, which is, which is 9%. So um, then if you look at, you know, that, that number is, 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 you know, small and, 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 uh, concerning. But what's even more concerning to us actually is how small these estimates are for high risk groups like U.S. childcare workers. Um, our estimate of, uh, high health, health risk knowledge of CMV among U.S. childcare workers um, based off of the Zachary uh, 26, uh, et al. 2016 study, our estimate was 11%. That's the best case scenario from our numbers as far as uh, the percentage of U.S. healthcare workers that have a level of knowledge of CMV that would actually help them prevent it, infection and spreading the disease. So how do you think we can do better? So not only national CMV, but, you know, medical, medical educators, medical providers, um, and other, others working in the field, how can we move beyond just CMV awareness to address the health risk knowledge gap? What can we do differently? So I really think it starts with the education of healthcare professionals. And I think it starts early because no matter what field um, that healthcare um, providers go into when they start their basic training. So, for example, uh, doctors uh, undergo a first two years in most schools of this kind of basic um, sciences education before they move into um, clinical rotations and then into specific fields of study. But no matter where they end up, every provider, every provider in any kind of healthcare field is going to have the opportunity to interact with women of childbearing age. And that represents an educational opportunity. And in addition, many of these providers will be women of childbearing age themselves. And so 
if they do work with children in any case, then that also means that CMV can be an occupational hazard for them. So I really think, since we know that women during prenatal care still prefer to get their information um, about their prenatal care um, from healthcare providers and not from the internet and not from friends, that we need to do a better job of educating those people who are, who are going to be professionally in those positions. Um, and I think that means it has to be, it has to be a core part of, um, of their early medical education. Um, I think that, um, they need to, uh, we need to be better about the way we present it. Um, when I have found, um, CMV present in textbooks, and actually this is a study that we are just beginning to work on, is the representation of CMV in textbooks and the way that we're teaching about it. And when we find it, um, it is sometimes just presented as part of a list of teratogens or um, infectious agents that can um, uh, affect a, a, a pregnancy um, with nothing at all listed about the ways that you can contract or spread it. And so it creates a lot of confusion. It doesn't give any information, that's for sure, um, but it can also create confusion if it's presented, for example, um, there is a test that you can have while you're pregnant called the TOR screen, um, which is a, a screening for uh, several um, agents and bacteria that can affect a pregnancy, toxoplasmosis, uh, rubella, CMV, HIV, AIDS. Um, and, uh, but none of, those, none of those agents actually share a common mode of transmission, a way to be contracted. Uh, so it can create a lot of confusion about what pedomegalovirus actually is. So I think there needs to be more time spent, um, and not a lot of time, you know, just proportionate to its incidence in the population. If up to 40,000 kids a year are affected by congenital CMV, then it does warrant some explanation about how you can contract it, I believe. Um, and so I think that the way that we're teaching about it needs to, needs to change, and it needs to come earlier, and we cannot expect that this is going to become part of professional training for those who specifically work with um, obstetric populations. I don't think that we can really um, wait to, to um, have the interventions then. And the other good news is that whatever um, information that we put into um, early education of healthcare professionals about universal precautions, it's going to protect them. It's going to protect them about uh, not just from CMV, but from many other um, viruses and illnesses that can affect uh, not, you not only when you're pregnant, but also just your general health. And so it's just good knowledge and training to have with regards to infectious agents. So really, that's what I think is a key component, um, that it's the, the healthcare professional arena that we need to make sure that we're um, a better job of, of educating them, because they, in turn, hold the power to educate others. Um, and I think from there, we can just hope that knowledge will and awareness will both um, increase in the population. I really couldn't agree more. I think that based on your personal experiences and your professional interactions with these populations, I think you definitely, you both definitely offer such a unique perspective in terms of what needs to be done and the kind of messaging that really is resonating with people and how we can continue to get that out to the mainstream um, and sort of try to incorporate those universal precautions, as you mentioned, in lieu of a vaccine or any other sort of definitive intervention, I think uh, is tremendous because there are things that 
can be done. Um, and identifying children is one and putting them into early intervention to improve outcomes is another. But it starts with prevention, it starts with education, it starts with conversation and knowledge. And so the work that you guys are doing is tremendous and we're so glad to have you part of this community. Um, knowing that you're both completely busy and you have other children at home in addition to your congenital CMV babe, Gideon, who's now five, as well as your professional daily and workload. Um, what are you guys working on now? Is there anything else in this arena you wanted to talk about regarding CMV? So we're working on a few different things here. Um, so I teach uh, anatomy at Midwestern University in um, Glendale, Arizona. And uh, at this school, it's an allied health professional school. So we have a medical school. We have an uh, occupational therapy uh, program. We have physical therapy program, speech and language pathology, um, a vet school, um, uh, physician's assistants. We te basically teach across the entire allied healthcare spectrum. Um, which is great. It gives me an opportunity to interact with a lot of different people. Um, but it also uh, provides an opportunity for me to, to look at how we're teaching all of these different communities about CMV. Um, so one study that we've been working on and we're trying to get into publication in the next few months is actually looking at, you know, if, for example, I teach my anatomy class but using CMV as just a clinical example to illustrate something, how muscles work how the brain develops, um, something else that's kind of relevant to CMV. And I'm not actually kind of lecturing on CMV, but I'm just putting it out there, um, uh, trying to pique their interest, because we know that stories um, also engage students with, with some of the material. Um, you know, will that actually improve um, their awareness and their knowledge of CMV? Um, and we're getting some pretty interesting results um, from that study that, again, are showing that uh, awareness is not enough. And just because you increase the awareness of, some, uh, of somebody about CMV, it doesn't necessarily mean that they understand, you know, anything more about the health risks of um, contracting CMV um, while pregnant. Um, we're looking at how CMV is covered in medical textbooks, um, and especially in relation to other less common conditions, um, other conditions that perhaps are getting more attention in the media, like Zika. Um, what is the relevance? How much of that information is accurate and precise with regard to um, uh, the uh, explaining um, how you can contract it, but also the behaviors that you can undertake to reduce the risk of um, contracting it while you're pregnant? And then another thing that we're working on locally here in Arizona is, um, is how do we package the message of prevention um, for our local population? Um, because every state has, um, you know, a different culture. And in Arizona, um, we have a lot of births per year that are to um, women of diverse um, backgrounds uh, for whom uh, the message of especially uh, food sharing while pregnant um, needs to be culturally tailored. And we need to make sure that we're um, putting out a message that is um, something that uh, will, will make sense to different communities. And so we're doing a lot of work um, in the local communities right now, just finding out what is a, you know, basically field testing some of the educational materials, because we really do hope that um, this is the year that Arizona will put forward um, some legislation for CMV um, education and screening. 
Awesome. And I think that's a great reminder to some of our parents who are listening or some of our other CMV advocates who are looking for ways to get involved, but don't necessarily have inroads or connections with medical providers or looking for other opportunities to make some traction in their state. I think that's a great reminder for everybody is that there are things to do at the local level um, or even start with one practice and try and gain some trust in, in a relationship there and, and talk freely about CMV and the perspective you have as, as perhaps a parent parent or somebody involved with congenital CMV. So um, I think that's great. And, you know, for those listening, you can certainly listen to or follow, should I say, you can certainly follow Kathleen and Seth both on Twitter. Um, They're always putting out fresh information regarding what's going on in the space and things that they're learning as they go through the journey. Um, But for both of you, I'd love to hear just quickly, what is your biggest call to action or what is your biggest sense of urgency in this space today and what we can be doing better for congenital CMV to move this forward? I think the take-home message is basically awareness of CMV is not enough, that women need to be informed of the ways that they can um, change their behavior in order to reduce the risk of transmitting or contracting CMV while they're pregnant. That's what we need to be worrying about. Um, it's not. It's just not enough to say that they are, have heard about it somewhere. It doesn't mean that they can explain anything meaningful about it, and that's really, I think, um, our call to action is like that. That is the metric. That is what um, we need to be trying to improve in the general population. Yeah, I would echo that, and and you know basically say like, you, if you give someone a pamphlet, that's no guarantee that they're going to learn what they need to learn to um, to be safe, right? Even if the information is correct in there, and a lot of times information is not correct because they're not necessarily getting a pamphlet from their doctors. They're they may be talking to friends. They may be going seeing things on the internet. There's so much information on the internet now, right? Forums and blogs, like like you know, information where there's very little places on where there's very little quality control over the information, right? Like worse than Wikipedia, right? Um, and and you know what we found in in this most recent study that that we're you know fi- you know finalizing now is that these students uh, that were exposed to um, information about CMV, some of them, it seems like they went and they learned about it and they got correct information. Some of them went and learned and got incorrect information, apparently, because their health, their health risk knowledge actually decreased after being exposed to CMV and becoming more aware to, of, of CMV. Um, so that's just to reiterate, you know, um, Kathleen's point that, the, that the, the, the target should really be health risk knowledge and the things that people can do to uh, keep their babies safe. Awesome. Well, as always, tremendous insight from both of you. We really appreciate you guys joining us and all you continue to do to push for progress with congenital CMV. Thanks so much for your time. What an insightful and motivating conversation with Dr. Kathleen Muldoon and Dr. Seth Dobson. Just like Kathleen and Seth, we hope you'll continue to do your part to increase knowledge of CMV in your community and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by Meridian Bioscience, working to create healthcare solutions that help save lives with each discovery, each diagnosis, every patient, every day. Visit nationalcmv.org for additional topics and podcast episodes. And don't forget, National CMV Foundation is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on donor support to bring you programming like the show you just heard. Please go to nationalcmv.org backslash donate to give online or text stop CMV to 41411 to give by phone. I'm Kristen Spitek. Thanks for listening.